You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Hey all, sorry for anybody that has a duplicate episode in their feed. Uh, The first version of this episode went live with uh, some weird audio fumbles at the top. Uh, This is the correct version, and you can go ahead and... uh, ignore the last one if it's still there for you. Thanks so much. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. There are two kinds of things. The first kind is disordered and arbitrary. Things that have no sense, no shape, no sensible boundaries. In material science, these things are called amorphous. Glass is amorphous. Mount Piedmont is amorphous. A young woman, reading letters, minding her own business, shot dead at her office chair on a run-of-the-mill Monday morning, is amorphous. And then there is the second kind of thing. The thing that repeats. The thing that is patterned. The thing built on an internal and periodic logic. In material science, these things are called crystals. A snowflake is a crystal. A diamond is a crystal. And a story, properly told, is a crystal. Perhaps even a story about a young woman, reading letters, minding her own business, shot dead at her office chair on a run-of-the-mill Monday morning. That might be a crystal, too. Or else, perhaps, there is a third kind of thing, after all. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, on the periodicity of historical narratives, or crackpots. All matter is made up of atoms, which are in turn made up of particles. Some of these particles have a positive charge, and they are called protons. Others have no charge, and they are called neutrons. And still others have a negative charge, and these are called electrons. Or else, perhaps, there is no negative charge, after all. This was the idea that started everything rolling. That the electron was a mistake, a misapprehension, a myth. Bayard Peaks was a lanky, beady-eyed, close-cropped World War II veteran and the one to first realize the error. At the time, he was a second-year student at Northeastern University in Boston, although not for long. In 1952, the existence of the electron was not debatable. 
The question of what carried the electrical properties of matter had started to give way a century earlier, when Julius Plucker and his assistant Heinrich Geisler sealed a pair of electrodes in an airless glass tube. When Plucker ran a current between the electrodes, he noticed a green glow against the wall of the tube. A decade later, in 1869, another student of Plucker, Johann Hittorf, was able to discern a shadow cast by the cathode. Something was emanating from the electrified circuit. Another decade went by, and William Crookes determined that the luminosity of the rays were unaffected by either the gas in the tube or the metal of the electrode. The rays, then, weren't some byproduct or side effect of the electrical process. They were the electrical process itself. And even more tellingly, he could bend the rays with a magnetic field. It took a further 20 years to finally nail down what was going on with these rays. In 1897, J.J. Thompson ran cathode rays through an alley with aluminum plates on either side. The plates were magnetically charged, one positive, one negative, and Thompson observed that the rays always bent away from the negative ones. This was proof positive that electricity was made up of particles and that these particles were negatively charged. Thompson named them electrons. A year after Thompson identified the negative particle, German physicist Wilhelm Wein found the positive one. At the same time, Bacquerel, Röntgen, and the Curies were piecing together the X-ray and radioactivity. Altogether, these discoveries pointed to a very different world than had previously been assumed. Atoms were not immutable, static things. They were comprised of smaller pieces, which determined their properties. And those subatomic particles were movable and moving, in ways that contradicted classical Newtonian physics. The atomic age was upon us, and each new discovery in it, from radioactive decay to the photoelectric effect to nuclear fission, only further affirmed J.J. Thompson's results. The electron was real. Or was it? There are two kinds of solids. The orderly, called crystals, and the disorderly, called amorphous solids. This realization, as fundamental as the electron, was made possible because of the electron. In 1912, a German physicist named Max von Lau developed a technique for studying the arrangement of solids by sending X-rays through the material in question and recording the diffraction pattern made by those X-rays on a detector screen. With X-ray diffraction at their disposal, materials scientists began exploring the shapes and structures of anything under the sun and quickly noticed a pattern of patterns, a crystal of crystals. All crystals, no matter what they are made of or how they are formed, share a similar periodic atomic structure. Start at any point in a crystal, work outward, and you will discover a pattern that repeats over and over again. All other things the non-crystals don't. They have no pattern. Think of it like square tiles on your kitchen floor. Each square is bounded on all four sides by identical squares, a simple pattern that can repeat infinitely without ever leaving empty space. Maybe the pattern on your bathroom floor is a little more complicated. Maybe equilateral triangles connected by squares, connected by equilateral triangles, and on and on, ad infinitum or a starburst of rhombuses careening outwards under the shower tile. Look up at the wallpaper and there's another pattern, repeating infinitely with no empty space between its elements. Tessellation, the process of filling space with a repeated shape. In order to tessellate, you need a periodically repeating crystal. 
periodicity and symmetry are inextricably connected. Crystals have both, amorphous solids don't. Or else, maybe not. This is the idea that starts us towards the conclusion that there could be a third type of thing, neither crystal nor amorphous, periodic nor stochastic, ordered nor disordered. Dan Schechtman was a sharp-smiled, deep-eyed, close-cropped Israeli engineer, and the one to first realize the error. At the time, he was working on supercooled aluminum alloys with the National Institute of Standards and Technology at Johns Hopkins, although not for long. Bayard Funtner Peaks was born in Dover Foxcroft, Maine, on the 14th of December, 1922. As a child, he was interested in science and in science fiction, particularly the work of Jules Verne. He crossed the border into Canada and joined the Royal Air Force so that he could battle in World War II before America joined the fight. He eventually transferred over to the U.S. Army Air Corps in October of 1944. He never saw combat. Dan Sheckman was born in Tel Aviv on the 24th of January, 1941, in what was then Mandatory Palestine. As a child, he was interested in science and in science fiction, particularly the work of Jules Verne. When he encountered Cyrus Smith, the engineer at the heart of Verne's The Mysterious Island, he said, I thought that was the best thing a person could do. The engineer in the book knows mechanics and physics, and he creates a whole way of life on the island out of nothing. I wanted to be like that. He served for two and a half years as an Israeli sharpshooter, but never saw combat. Then the symmetry begins to break down. On March 12, 1945, Bayard Peaks was admitted to an American army hospital. He was described as tense, anxious, and preoccupied with guilt over some unnamed sexual preoccupation. Practically, the hospital found him difficult to manage. His behavior was erratic and appeared to be governed by hallucinations. Both his diagnosis and treatment exist down dead-end alleyways of psychiatric history. The hospital said Peaks was suffering from dementia precox, or precocious madness. In the view of German psychiatrist Emil Kraepelin, there were two types of mental disorders, manic depression and dementia precox. The first related to all mood disorders, which might be transient and treatable. Dementia precox, conversely, was progressive and essentially immutable. These psychoses might vary in their particulars, but nevertheless stretched on into infinity. Symmetrical, but aperiodic. Tessellating, but not repeating. Since the madness of dementia precox was infinite both in its kinds and severity, the possible treatments, too, were limitless. Nothing was beyond consideration, and in the 1920s, that meant a new wonder drug. Back around the turn of the century, two doctors, Oskar Minkowski and Joseph von Mehring, had identified the purpose of the pancreas. They had suspected it had something to do with the absorption of fats, but when they removed the organ from some dogs, the animals had no added difficulty digesting fat. But the animals were not unaffected. They soon died from what Minkowski recognized as diabetes. He figured it out when he noticed flies swarming on the dog's urine. It was 12% sugar. The pancreas was responsible for metabolizing sugar, not fat, Minkowski and von Mehring realized. But they couldn't figure out how it worked. The answer to that riddle came from Frederick Banting and John McLeod, who, in 1921, succeeded in isolating the useful secretion of the pancreatic glands. Banting and his team called the substance insulatin. 
but McLeod later refined its name to insulin. Banting managed to keep a diabetic dog alive for 70 days by giving it this insulin. This experiment led quickly to human use. In January of 1922, a 14-year-old boy named Leonard Thompson lay dying of hyperglycemia in a Toronto hospital bed until the doctors came round and injected him with the new insulin. Within a day, his blood glucose level had dropped to normal. In 1922, Banting and McLeod won the Nobel Prize, a turnaround time from discovery to decoration of just two years, virtually unheard of, aside from Max von Lau, who discovered X-ray diffraction and with it created modern crystallography in 1912, only to be given the Nobel in physics in 1914. Insulin was, and is a miracle drug. Treating diabetes was obvious and critical, but after it came widely to market in the mid-1920s, it was only natural that doctors would consider other possible uses. In 1927, Austrian psychiatrist Manfred Sackel began giving low doses of insulin to patients suffering from dementia precox. Along the way, a patient was accidentally overdosed and fell into an insulin coma. Upon recovery, Sackle noted that the patient was much improved cognitively and began purposely putting demented patients into insulin comas. He called this insulin shock therapy. Soon, the practice found its way to England and America, where it became essentially ubiquitous. Generally, patients were dosed with insulin six days a week for a period of about two months or until the hospital had managed to achieve 50 or 60 comas, each of which lasted around an hour. No one was sure of why insulin shock did such a good job treating schizophrenia and dementia. Some figured it was a jolt, not unlike electroconvulsive therapy or ice baths, which acted as a sort of hard reset for the brain. Others figured that schizophrenia and epilepsy were diametrically opposed, and that by using insulin to essentially manufacture epileptic seizures, they were pushing the dementia out. There was only room for one, they figured, seeing as it was very rare for a person to be affected by both. That each thing individually was quite rare, and thus even more rare in tandem, apparently escaped notice. Sackle personally thought his therapy worked by causing the autonomic nervous system to overfire, basically exercising the brain into better shape, like push-ups for the mind. Starting in the 1950s, a series of papers were published in The Lancet, suggesting that all these hypotheses were wrong. That insulin shock therapy was administered selectively, on less severe patients, and that if it worked at all, it was because it created brain damage, which psychiatrists mistook for calm. But that revelation was years away when Bayard Peaks was given his insulin shock therapy in the spring of 1945, as the Allies marched on Berlin. After the war, he was discharged, both from the armed forces and the armed forces mental hospital, and remitted into the care of his parents back in Dover Foxcroft. Over the next few years, his symptoms seemed to have ebbed and flowed, but never entirely abated. Not long after his return home, he stopped eating, apparently laboring under a delusion that all food offered to him was secretly made of human flesh. He wished to attend college, the Veterans Administration doctors wished him to attend treatment, and they split the difference by doing neither, until 1948, when, having shown no symptoms for at least three or four months, the Rehabilitation Board okayed his request to pursue higher education, against the wishes of their psychiatric consultant, Newman Cohen, who warned, It would be unwise to subject this fragile personality with all his psychotic residuals to the stress inherent in his planned objective. The prognosis is fraught with danger. 
the picture is a bleak one, and he does not appear to be feasible at this time to undertake a vocational training program. He spent two years at Northeastern University. The first one he managed ably, but by the end of the second he had fallen off. In July of 1950, he told Dr. Cohen that he was quitting because he wanted to continue studying medicine, but needed to find someone else to, quote, help me abolish the electron theory and start a search for a medicine to keep man young. Later that month, he sent a letter to the VA saying, I still expect to disprove the electron theory, get a political party started, and do some research in medicine. Someday I shall be able to put a few females to work at manual labor so they might grow some brains. If I don't find the eternal life, their children will. Whether he left university or was removed is unclear, but at the end of the day, immaterial. Either way, he had a new place to help him find and hopefully disseminate his big idea. The American Physical Society. Dan Schechtman had a funny feeling when he walked into the hotel convention center prepared to deliver his paper for the American Physical Society. It was the right place with the right sign on the door, but he didn't recognize the names or the faces inside. An unremarkable-looking man in an unremarkable-looking suit with unremarkable male pattern baldness walked up to him and extended a hand. Bob Gentry, how you doing? Dan Schechtman, all right. You presenting or viewing? Presenting. Same. What's your area? I'm working on pleochroic halos over at Oak Ridge. Oak Ridge? Schechtman repeated, impressed and relieved. Oak Ridge was one of the foremost laboratories in the world. Fermi had built the second nuclear reactor there during the Manhattan Project. If this gentry guy was working at Oak Ridge, Schechtman must be in the right place after all. Yeah, well, Department of Energy has it in their heads that I might help them find a new transactinide element, but between you and me, I doubt it. But hey, grants are grants. What are you working on? I'm in crystallography, Dan answered, still guardedly. Oh, then you already know. Know what? Oh, my time. Wish me luck. Dan Sheckman watched as his new friend took the stage. His presentation was thorough and technical. Bob Gentry had been studying the radio halos around certain igneous rocks. The halos were the result of alpha particles let off during the decay of radioactive isotopes. It wasn't Sheckman's area, but it wasn't far off either, and he understood the work as Gentry described it pretty well. Gentry asserted that the polonium halos he observed in Precambrian biolite indicated rapid formation. A bold theory, Sheckman thought for a moment. Then Gentry came to his point. This is incontrovertible proof that Earth was formed by God 6,000 years ago. Shit, Sheckman muttered under his breath. They've stuck me with the crackpots. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. 
So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Constant is brought to you by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp assesses your needs and gets you matched with your own licensed professional therapist, allowing you to start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line or self-help. It's professional counseling in a safe, private, convenient online environment. Send a message to your counselor anytime and receive timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp has licensed professional counselors specializing in depression, trauma, relationships, grief, and much more. And since it's available worldwide, you can find the particular expertise you need online without limiting yourself to the counselors located near you. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash the constant. It's 2021. If you're looking for someone to help you undermine the established scientific order, you don't have to subjugate yourself to the wishes of the American Physical Society. Because you've got Indeed. Indeed.com is the hiring site that helps you find quality candidates with Indeed Instant Match. Indeed searches through the millions of resumes in their database to help show you great candidates instantly, so you can do the part you really need faster, meeting and hiring great people. Unlike some hiring sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility, delivering a quality shortlist faster. With Indeed, there's no long-term contracts, you can pause your account anytime, and you only pay for what you need. With Instant Match, you see a great list of candidates with zero weight. Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined, and one and a half more hires than internal referrals, according to Talent Nest. Want your quality shortlist fast? You need Indeed. Right now, our listeners get a free $75 credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com the constant. Join over 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed for hiring. This is Indeed's best offer available anywhere. Get a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash The Constant. That's Indeed.com slash The Constant. One word. Offer valid through March 31st. Terms and conditions may apply. Hey, Matt. Did you know that wombats poop cubes? Nope. Never heard that before. Did you know the unicorn is the national animal of Scotland, Ken? I didn't know, nor do I care. Neil, did you know that Liechtenstein is the only doubly landlocked country in Europe? Jeff, isn't that an American pop artist? Well, actually, it's both. If you want to learn things like that and more, join us each week on Triviality, a pub trivia-style game show podcast where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Listen in each week to answer general knowledge trivia alongside exciting guests from around the world. And we're here, too. Join us every Tuesday for new hour-long episodes of Triviality, plus tons of extra themed content on everything from The Office and Lord of the Rings to science and geography. And sometimes we even do sports. 
Find us on all your preferred podcast apps and take part in the fun of playing bar trivia without the need to wear pants. Real mature, Jeff. Forget it, Neil. It's triviality. On May 20th, 1899, a group of physicists held a meeting at Columbia University where they formed the American Physical Society with the goal of advancing and diffusing knowledge of physics. As the years went by, their portfolio grew to include a number of publications, both technical and public-facing, and a slew of education and outreach programs. But the heart of APS has always been, from its start, the conferences. There were generally four of them a year, and at any one you went to, you might find some great scientific mind expounding on a brand new, earth-shaking idea, like TED Talks for the Physics Genius set. Maybe you'd listen to Louis Walter Alvarez, student both of Enrico Fermi and Robert Oppenheimer, Manhattan Project physicist and Nobel winner. From year to year, he might explain how to improve particle accelerators, how to x-ray the pyramids for secret chambers, or even how Lee Harvey Oswald's bullet caused Kennedy's head to snap back and to the left. Less ostentatiously, you could have heard Carl K. Darrow, the society's secretary from 1941 to 1967. Carl was the nephew of attorney Clarence Darrow, and while he never achieved the fame of either his uncle or his friend Alvarez, he was widely regarded in the physics community as a brilliant, precise, clear thinker, with an act for appraising and interpreting even the highest level work in the field, and the humor and wit to make explaining it all palatable. You could hear from Frederick George Keyes, who invented a method for sterilizing milk using ultraviolet rays, Ralph Kronick, discoverer of particle spin, Erwin Schrodinger and his cat, Oppenheimer, Fermi, Feynman, the who's who of American physics. But after 1952, you could also expect to hear from any old Joe Schmo or whack job who happened to pay their dues. The American Physical Society enacted a new policy saying that anyone should have 10 minutes to present their idea, no matter who they were or what it was. But to try to separate the wheat from the chaff, the organizers did their best to corral the weirdos into one time and place where they could be safely ignored by anyone uninterested in hearing zany, semi-literate takedowns of Einstein's theory of relativity, discoveries in free energy and perpetual motion, and young earth biblical literalists like Bob Gentry. In every year and at every event, they would have to give this session a different title, something innocuous enough sounding that it didn't alert the participants, but curious enough that everybody else might have a chance to sniff it out. Formally, the event would usually be called something like general physics, general theory, new directions in physics, quantum foundations, or even simply Friday. But informally, the members of APS called it the crackpot session. And Dan Schechtman had been plopped in it again. After either leaving or being run out of Northeastern, Bayard Peaks compiled his 33-page masterpiece. While advertised as an argument against the existence of electrons and a roadmap for male immortality, the bulk of the monograph covered rudimentary concepts in physics almost straight out of a 101 textbook, but more often incorrectly. He titled it, So You Love Physics. It opened, Did you know that the electron never existed? Then read this booklet through and become brilliant. In 1948, he sent a copy to the American Physical Society, where it landed on the desk of Secretary Carl K. Darrow, who summarily rejected it without comment. So Peaks tried a more shotgun path. He printed as many copies of So You Love Physics as he could afford and sent them to anybody he could think of, officials at prestigious laboratories, university physics professors, even Albert Einstein. 
He didn't receive a single response. He kept writing more papers and pamphlets, giving unattended speeches, and submitting again and again to the American Physical Society. In 1951, now working at a meatpacking plant and named a ward of his mother by the VA, he submitted How to Live Forever. Darrow took the time to send off a brusque reply this time, telling Peaks to give it up. He didn't. There had to be a way to get his message out. He'd tried doing things the right way, but no one would pay attention to him. Attention. That was the problem. It was too easy to ignore a letter or a pamphlet or a speech. He needed something insuppressible. At first, he thought a bomb would do the trick. Then he compiled a list of random physics professors around New York City, whom he loosely planned to go around killing. But then it occurred to him to go right to the heart of the problem. If he was going to New York City anyway, he could visit the American Physical Society directly. And Carl Darrow, its secretary. At NIST, Dan Sheckman and his colleagues were dropping mixtures of different liquid metals inside a fast-spinning vacuum, which could decrease the temperature of the red-hot molten materials by 1,000 degrees Celsius in a second. In this way, they were able to create new alloys, which the project's funder, DARPA, hoped might be useful for building airplanes or computer parts. But there was also enough money for Schechtman to play around with metals that stood virtually no chance of being useful. While his colleagues focused on silver and copper, he spent his free time mixing aluminum and manganese. On April 8, 1982, he spun out an alloy that was 86% aluminum and 14% manganese. Then he shot the resultant metal alloy with x-rays like Max von Lau had and produced a diffraction pattern. When he looked at that pattern, he shouted out loud to the empty lab, there ain't no such animal. What he was seeing was impossible. There are two kinds of things, the repeating and the random, the crystalline and the amorphous, order and chaos. What Dan Schechtman had on the desk in front of him was neither. What Eileen Fahey had on the desk in front of her were letters from Private Ronald Leo. Leo was in Tokyo on deployment for the Korean War. Before he left, he had proposed to Eileen, and she had accepted. But communication across the world in wartime was sporadic and unpredictable, long silences punctuated by random spouts of letters. On the morning of July 14, 1952, she'd received three. She'd grabbed them on her way out the door to work and managed to barely contain herself for the whole trip there. Entering the office, she'd poured herself a glass of orange juice and sat down at her desk on the ninth floor of Columbia University's Pupin Hall, home to the American Physical Society. As she tore open the first of the letters, she heard a man's voice from behind her ask, Have they dropped the electron theory yet? I don't know anything about it, she answered, and when she turned around to face him, she saw the gun. For years, both Bayard Peaks and Dan Schechtman had struggled to get anyone to accept their impossible conclusions. Behind the scenes, Carl Darrow had advocated for banning Peaks and other so-called eccentrics from giving papers at the American Physical Society. His friend, Louis Walter Alvarez, student of Fermi and Oppenheimer, Manhattan Project physicist and Nobel winner, had argued the other side, that no one should be barred, that all should be admitted, that every idea, no matter how facially asinine, 
should be given its due. After July 14, 1952, Alvarez's side won out. Everybody would be given their chance to make their point. Even crackpots, like Dan Schechtman. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. Dan Sheckman's paper for APL was entitled Metallic Phase with Long-Range Orientational Order and No Translational Symmetry, and it described what he found in the makeup of his aluminum-manganese alloy. It was the third kind of thing, neither crystal nor amorphous. His peers called it a quasi-crystal, which Sheckman didn't like but was powerless to influence. Linus Pauling was the most famous and accomplished scientist of his time, the most brilliant mind since Einstein, the second person, after Marie Curie, to win two Nobel Prizes in two separate disciplines. The first he won for his work in quantum chemistry, a field he helped to form. His second Nobel was the Peace Prize, which he received for orchestrating the nuclear test ban between the UK, US, and USSR. When Linus Pauling read Schechtman's paper, he is reported to have responded, There are no quasi-crystals, only quasi-scientists. Of course, Pauling also thought he could cure cancer with vitamin C. Everybody makes mistakes. Even if you accepted his immoral logic, Bayard Peaks had made at least two. First of all, he hadn't succeeded in killing the secretary of the American Physical Society, but the secretary of the American Physical Society's secretary. Secondly, he seemed to have elided a step in his plan. He thought that if he killed someone, it would get him attention, and if it got him attention, he could transfer that attention to his ideas. But that could only work on one condition that people knew he had done it. He'd arrived in New York the night before with a semi-automatic 22 caliber handgun tucked in a brown paper sack. On the morning of the 14th, he'd arrived at Pupin Hall and blindly fumbled around until he found the American Physical Society. Then he asked the secretary, have they dropped the electron theory yet? When she turned to respond, I don't know anything about it, he'd fired six shots and then jogged briskly away. Traveling to the stairwell, he passed by Thomas Green, who, unbeknownst to either of them, had been on Peake's abortive list of physicists to randomly shoot. Green backed into his office and locked the door. As Peake's passed by the office supervisor, he told her, Call an ambulance, I just shot a girl. Then he disappeared into the stairwell and out of the building. He wasn't pleased with his target. He'd hoped to kill someone with some clout. But it seems he'd been too itchy and impatient, and he'd taken aim at the first person he saw. He worried that an 18-year-old Judy Garland look-alike wouldn't get him or his ideas the attention they required, and briefly considered reloading and wandering into the nearest newspaper office for a second attack. Instead, he got on a train and returned to Boston. 
When he arrived back at home, he decided to go out dancing. By the time Dr. Green and Mrs. Lumley, the office supervisor, had gotten to Eileen Fahey, she was already cold and unresponsive, lying in a pool of her own blood. The only one around to hear her last words was her murderer, who later reported them as, he's just standing there, he's loading the thing again. Almost everything there is to say about Eileen Fahey centers around either her murder or her pretty teenage girlhood. She loved her fiancé, she loved her siblings, she loved her mother, she worked to help bring in extra money for her family. She was shot, once in the hand and five times in the chest, before opening the other two letters, before finishing her glass of orange juice. Everything there is to know about Eileen Fahey revolves around someone else, including the last thing. Bayard Peaks was picked up by the Boston police in little more than 48 hours. After police determined that Eileen Fahey had no enemies or lovers, they quickly focused their attention on who might have a grudge against the American Physical Society. At the top of the shortlist was Bayard Peaks. Finding his address was simple enough. He'd mailed it to 6,500 physicists along with his booklet, So You Love Physics. When police entered his Boston apartment, they found a 22 caliber Ruger. It had been recently fired. Just after midnight, Peaks returned from his dance and was arrested. He didn't deny the charges. He allowed himself to be voluntarily extradited to New York and at the train station told the reporters, You got me. I'm the one that killed her. Yes, I'm the naughty boy. Before that, he was interviewed by Captain Francis Wilson of the Boston PD, who asked, What was your reason for killing Miss Fahey? It was my book. They wouldn't look at my book. They wouldn't even look at it. What was the matter with the society? They didn't even look at it. I know they didn't look at it. They should have looked at it. They should have looked at it. It was a mistake that Louis Walter Alvarez made sure the American Physical Society would never make again. Alvarez's belief in the free exchange of ideas served him in good stead. In the late 70s, he joined his son, geologist Walter Alvarez, on a research project in central Italy. Walter showed his father the thin layer of clay at the boundary between the Cretaceous and Paleogene and explained to him that the clay represented the time of a mass extinction event, but nobody knew what had formed it. Alvarez was able to take a sample of the clay to Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory and, along with the help of chemists Frank Asaro and Helen Michel, found an anomalous amount of iridium in the clay. From this, Asaro, Michel, and the Alvarezes published a 1980 paper that got them labeled as crackpots by the geologic community. That a meteor had killed the dinosaurs. In a sense, Baird Peak's murderous ploy had worked. The publicity surrounding his trial did get a number of people to finally read through So You Love Physics. It was seen as evidence of his madness. He was found not guilty by reason of insanity and committed to Madawan State Hospital for the criminally insane. With the exception of a few years in the mid-70s that he lived with his mother, he spent the rest of his life in psychiatric care. He died on July 1st, 2000. Dan Sheckman's paper got read too. In fact, it has gone on to become one of the 10 most cited articles in the history of the American Physical Society. As more and more material scientists read the paper, they also started trying to replicate his results. And they did. By 1994, there was essentially one person left arguing against the existence of Schechtman's quasicrystals. 
Linus Pauling. He died on August 19th, convinced everyone else was wrong. Like alloys, and people, and shootings, stories are things, too. So ultimately, they also must either endorse order or chaos. They either impose meaning on the world or deny that such meaning exists. But there is a third kind of thing, and Dan Sheckman saw it through his electron microscope. His alloy had a different kind of symmetry than anyone had ever noticed before. Ten point. It didn't repeat itself, but had a sort of higher level order nonetheless. There are now hundreds of known quasi-crystals, and they are used for everything from insulation to diesel engines to LEDs to frying pans. In 2011, two awards were given out. The first was the Nobel Prize in Chemistry, which was bestowed upon Dan Schechtman for his discovery. In his speech accepting it, he tackled one of the difficult questions surrounding quasi-crystals. Why had these things, which turned out to be pretty common, not been discovered before by someone else? Schechtman chalked it up to five things. One factor was transmission electron microscopy, the technique he used to view his alloy. There weren't a lot of people who knew TEM, and Schechtman knew it very well. But other than that, he figured the discovery came down mostly to tenacity and courage. He had to believe in himself, in spite of everything and everyone, who told him that what he was saying was impossible. In another setting, that quality might be called delusion. It is structurally indecipherable from the guias that drove Bayard Peaks to murder, yet achieved a nearly opposite result. The other award given out in 2011 went to Laura Mackey, an undergraduate student at Winona State University, the Eileen Fahey Memorial Scholarship. She met all the criteria. She was a physics major, in good academic standing, and female. Most importantly, she completed a compelling essay professing her belief in the existence of the electron. She went on to graduate magna cum laude. This is the third kind of story. It seems to convey meaning, but the nature of that meaning is ineffable. It's given to some higher level order, but not one that can be easily translated. In actuality, history is the first quasi-crystal ever discovered. It was Mark Twain who observed that it doesn't repeat itself, but often rhymes. Music for today's episode by Lee Rosevere, Blue Dot Sessions, Kevin McLeod, and Anime is Trash. Special thanks go out to all our Patreon subscribers, especially Michael Paxson, Lavian, David McMillan, Anna Patel, Jason Cohen, TJP, and David White, who's part of a podcast called The Ancient and Esoteric Order of the Jackalope, which did a great job scooping me on the story of Bayard Peaks. You should go give it a listen right now. Just search for Order of the Jackalope wherever you get your podcasts. While you're at it, go check out Ministry of Ideas, a fellow member of Hub & Spoke Audio Collective, whose latest episode is Above the Veil, a thoughtful and complex evaluation of race, classical education, and an anti-racist future for all. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where Fermi's first nuclear reactor was built, this has been The Constant. Thank you.